Just a heads up, this episode contains some very salty language and some pretty graphic descriptions. This is an ABC podcast. You tie the, the pinches up and, and the big claws and um, you tie them in from behind so he can still walk, he can still tackling, move, breathe, and it, do, it doesn't bring any harm to the crabs. He calms them down, if anything, because they can't be aggressive and display, display their nippers. It's all over and done with in a matter of seconds. If you've never seen one of Stanage Bay's famous mud crab tying competitions, the whole ritual makes for a pretty weird scene. You've got a lineup of people crouching down and they're using their big toe to hold the crab in place while they race to tie up those nippers with twine. The, the big crabs here, they're all around the two kilo mark, so you have to be quick in grabbing these crabs and putting them under your feet to tie. All the competitors are hyper-focused. To do this right, you need to get enough pressure on your toe to hold the crab still, but not so much that you'll crack the shell. The person who can tie two crabs in the fastest time is crowned the champion. And that's a serious honour because in Stanage Bay, crabbing is like a religion. There was two crabs we had to tie in the local competition. I had the ability of grabbing both of them and putting them under my feet and then tying both of them there and then... And I think that element won me the title for a few years. And in any condition too, I could be pretty drunk and fall over, but I'd still tie two crabs within a minute. Jason really is one of the greatest crab tying champions to ever grace Stanage with his big toe. This is the story of how he lost his balance and claimed a new title, the Pirate of Stanage Bay. I'd like to think I was born a pirate and a series of events led me to be one. I'm Elizabeth Kulas. Welcome to Days Like These. And today's episode is for seagoers and landlubbers alike. But it is not for the faint of heart. Our guest reporter, Meg Bolton... Today, you are taking us to Stanage Bay. Yeah, it's a tiny fishing village on the central Queensland coast. You've got to drive about 100 k's on a gravel track to get there. But when you do, the water is all kinds of blue. The cliffs are picturesque and there's a village pub where everyone goes because it's the only one in town. Exactly how small is Stanage? Well, only about 80 people live there and Jason, he's one of them. And when you say that Jason is a pirate, I have to clarify, just exactly how much does he look like one? I'm getting a Jack Sparrow, a kind of Captain Hook vibe. How far off am I? Well, he does have shoulder-length black hair. OK, check. But instead of a frilly shirt, Jason's in bodies and thongs. The thing that is totally on brand, though, is that, yeah, the ocean is where he makes a living, but it's also his life. And that's why Stanage will always be his spiritual home. Ahoy, Meg. Can't wait to hear it. Take it away. Stanage is, is unique in a way that it's um, isolated from uh, what we call the real world or, you know, city life. It's, um, it, it's definitely a step back in time. Fishing is a way of life here and Stanage is known amongst amongst many places, is a place to catch a big crab, a big crustacean, or, um, or a fish, a big fish. It's just one thing you grow up with. With the huts being so close on top of the beach, 
you walk walk down is shit i'd say 10 20 meters and you're at the ocean's edge you know um, tide pending growing up we didn't realize how lucky we had it i guess it was just it was just every day it was an everyday thing you know we, we um you're down the beach you're fishing you're picking oysters or you're shell collecting or um you know, you, you generally, we grew up on the beach, at the beach, so I've got salt in the veins, definitely. It's only a little town, so everyone has a pretty good understanding of everyone's business. Along with his brothers, Jason makes a living as a commercial fisherman. He loves his job and his life by the sea. But after a few years, he starts dreaming of something bigger. And it's right about that time when an opportunity comes up for Jason to test the waters internationally. It's the perfect job for him. He's working on big boats in Thailand. It's been my dream. I think it's everyone's dream to to drive a bigger boat. So I followed uh, this, this business venture overseas and it allowed us to drive big boats, refit boats and um, of super yacht calibre. It sounds like the perfect adventure, so Jason packs up and jets over to Thailand with his partner Petra and spends the next few years living his actual dream. Pretty soon, Jason gets to know a Thai family. They let him live in one of their properties near Phuket. And in exchange, he helps out sometimes, doing chores for the reggae bar they own. He's comfortable and he's enjoying the work. And then one day in late 2019, he gets up, showers, has his standard can of Red Bull for breakfast. And then he looks out and realises no one has opened the reggae bar next door. It's odd because normally at this time he'd hear the faint sounds of a Bob Marley track drifting out and see people sitting around the open bar. So Jason jumps on his motorbike to drive the couple of Ks to his friend's house to see if she needs a hand opening up. I rode probably 300 metres. I didn't make it far. There was a a roadblock, or what what resembled a roadblock or a meeting. They all broke up in in their own ways. They they went a number of ways, which inhibited me to go any further. So I I went through the gears of the bike and slowed right down to uh, let the tyres do their thing and and go around me, so to speak. And when I thought the the, the pathway was clear, I... uh, I accelerated to go around a couple of tyres that were on the wrong side of the road. And as I went around them, I got uh, sideswiped by something. Turned out it was another scooter. I didn't see it at the time, but um, it had a cart, so to speak, welded to the side of it. They call them salangs. Jason collides with the side cart, but that doesn't actually stop his motorbike from driving on. He gains momentum. He's losing control. Up ahead, He can see a parked car and he finds himself veering towards it. He hits the car and smash. There goes the side mirror. As I rode on, I got past what I thought was major damage, which was the mirror. I turned around on the bike. I felt the wind uh, where it shouldn't have been. All right, here is where I have to say that if you're at all squeamish, you're going to want to put your fingers in your ears for about 30 seconds. Which was halfway through my foot. So as I looked down, the only thing hanging on was my big toe as well. I I bent down and gathered up um, what I thought was, uh, you know, a shoe or something, but I actually wasn't wearing anything. And then I realised that, oh, I'm cut, I'm cut. But 
I laid the bike down and I virtually, uh, I virtually just collapsed. And um, it was then that I, I witnessed my blood flow that uh, covered the road. It just kept getting bigger, the biggest pool of blood I'd ever want to see again because it went from red to black. And then, you know, I realised that, oh, yeah, I'm in trouble, oh no. Imagine drawing a line from the top of your foot, from the gap between your big toe and your second toe, the spot where you put your thongs on usually. Jason's foot is ripped open down that same line. It's really bad. He's in serious trouble, lying on a street thousands of kilometres away from Stanage Bay. He knows that he has to get to hospital fast. A woman walking past stops to ask if she can help. My last breath, they said, please ring somebody. And um, so she contacted my uh, other half, who was in Australia at the time, and, uh, yeah, the, she uh, organised help from there. I just sat there with, uh, you know, my arms folded on one knee and the other leg was bleeding out. And um, I, I was just willing to accept my fate. It was just one of those things that I'm, gonna, I'm not well here, it's not good. Then all of a sudden, one of Jason's mates appears and he uses Jason's T-shirt as a makeshift bandage and his belt as a tourniquet. They put it around my leg as a tourniquet and it technically saved my life. I would not be here without that man. Back in Australia, Jason's partner Petra is making frantic calls, trying desperately to organise help. From the accident, it felt like hours. Faces weren't, they were just shapes. I was seeing cloudiness in the, and uh, I'd lost a lot of blood. The faces were morphing and melting and one till I could really focus and then it was because I was, I was, I believe I was, you know, I was dying. So between coming in and out of consciousness, Jason realises Petra's managed to find help. The captain of the boat he works on has arrived. So I sat up and it was my captain and I've gone, what are you doing? Is this heaven or hell? But what I can remember from there is that the ambulance did arrive finally and to me it was great, finally, you know, I'm saved. It's like he's watching a movie, but somehow he's missing most of it. One moment he's lying in the back of an ambulance. Next, he's given painkillers. Then it all goes black. The next time I woke up, I was actually in what I thought was the body bag. And I've gone, what the fuck? It's a fucking body bag. I'm fucking out of here. So I'm wriggled out. I've wriggled out of it and I've gone, I'm still alive. It's total chaos, but the paramedics are able to calm him down long enough to arrive at the hospital. They put me over a sink and they scrubbed my foot, which was now in two pieces. And um, I, it was about that time I felt pain. I could really feel that. I remember that sensation well because it woke me up from the slumber and I've gone, you know, it, I'm in pain. Stop it, stop it. They asked you a pretty big question at the hospital. What was it? Well, they, um, they asked me whether I wanted to save my foot, you know, and, uh, of course, I said yes. I said yes, of course. And uh, just fix my foot, save my foot. And then they transferred me to another hospital in another ambulance. All that's a bit shady because I can't remember. Maybe it's the drugs. But the next thing, I was rushing through uh, the hospital again, through another hospital door, and I was wide awake for that because, you know, it was all action. There was four or five people that they were wheeling me fast through different uh, corridors. And, you know, well, once again, is this heaven or hell? What's going on? 
Jason remembers coming through just long enough for the doctors to reassure him he'll walk again. Then he slips back under. I'd, I'd went through a couple of procedures there and uh, they put wire straight through the tips of my toes. I think all up I had 13 wires that went through each toe. The middle two resembled where my tendon should have been and they pushed these wires through till I met at the ankle and they tied them around the ankle and then they put my foot together to resemble a foot. And it looked like a foot. I can't, I can't fault the doctors for that. They're, they're great plastic surgeons. When we left the hospital, I think it was a week later, all signs of life was there. They took the bandages off. Um, and it was all pink, and I had feeling all over. Five toes uh, on the heel, I had feeling everywhere they touched. Even when I wasn't looking, I had to look away and they touched. I could tell them where it was. So I had feeling, general feeling around, and the foot was alive because the blood was still just able to pump, even though I was missing toes, uh, the metatarsal bones and the tendons to two of my toes. I say it's like they patty cake me foot back together and here you go, mate, she'll be right. That's the Aussie way to look at it. But in my mind, it was, it was to be saved. Jason gets on the plane from Bangkok to Brisbane full of hope. He's going to be OK. He's headed home to Stanage, back to fishing, to tying crabs. But before he makes it all the way home, he stops at the hospital in Brisbane just so the doctors can give him a once-over. We went straight to the Brisbane Hospital and they checked me over. They were quite surprised what they seen. It was still alive. The, the foot was, it was pink in colour, but it had a lot of wires hanging out of it. Technically, they uh, made tendons out of, you know, my wires. They, they said, oh, these are just in there for um, keepsake, just, you know, where your tendons were, there's wires now, but they'll take them out. And, and they did. My first debriding in Brisbane, after they looked at it, they took the wires out and discovered a mild infection. So um, I had to wait it out. Over the period of uh, the, the five to six days, was the, the next procedure was the toes were dying. They were losing the blood flow to them and um, they had no bones to them. No, um, no more wires, so to speak, involved as well. But they were worried the wires had carried the infection too, uh, to my bone or you know, through the blood. So they took well, many blood tests. And they kept an eye on it. They they took samples of the um, infection to um, see what see what it was, see if it actually was a super bug or not. But um, it come back as no, it's just an ordinary uh, bug. They they said they could they could get on top of that, but it could take up to a week as well with uh, you know anti antibiotics. But um, it was a long wait to wait and see if they could get on top of it or or where they could get further into my bone, and then there would be troubles. Jason's still clinging blindly to the hope his foot is going to be okay. He's telling himself he's just on a stopover on his way back to Stanage to his ordinary life. Surely the doctors can save his foot. It was about uh, the fifth day. The, the doctors were saying it's going to be some amputation. You really have to think about amputation. Oh, okay, there's going to be some amputation. Let it be the toe or, you know, two toes, so be it. But I think they were procedures ahead and, and they, were, they were thinking that it has to go either from the ankle or, or further upwards, uh, below the knee even. The doctors are telling him, but he just doesn't want to hear it. The mood shift was, um, you know, I'd gone from, you know, glory days to 
doom, you know, it was like doom and gloom. It was like you got nothing now to live for. You're going to lo- you're going to lose a leg, uh, so to speak, because you think that losing a foot is just a foot. And, and my mother, she said, oh, it's just a foot. You'll be right. But it, it's not really just a foot. You, you see it as a leg because, you know, you, you, well, you think you're going to lose all motivation, so to speak. They're talking amputation and um, I kept saying, no, save it, save it. It's all I had to say. And they'd go and gather and uh, get uh, more specialists and have meetings and they'd um, put it to the drawing board, I dare say, and see what they could do. But there's actually nothing they could do. They couldn't. They were talking plastic, uh, 3D bones. They were talking titanium plates in, insertion, but there was really nothing there to stitch it to because um, with the bones gone, there was the foot was going to splay. So it was going to be a lot of work, a, a lot, a lot of a lot more pain to go through. You know, one of the thoughts that goes through your mind when um, you know you have to make a decision of amputation. I did think. What would my what would my children think of me? You know, are they going to want to hang with me? Are they going to want to walk with me in public? Uh, I remember thinking, actually, I, I, if I ever had something like that, I, I wouldn't want to live. After the amputation, I, I remember waking up in recovery, but it was all a haze. I was dreaming some funny things. It was very cold in there. I thought it was a dream, you know, and it was real blurry. And um, I actually sat up. I sort of had a, you know, a, a bloody epiphany, if you want. Uh, and I sat up real quick, and I was feeling where my leg was, and there was nothing there. There was like a pillow, and I could, all I seen was white and red. And it was cold, and I thought. I thought to myself, you know, what, what's going on here? And I thought me mate Woodsy, and he's a butcher, or used to be a butcher, and I thought we're in a butchery for some reason and he's cutting meat and he's cut my leg by mistake. And I'm, I remember saying, Woodsy, you cut my leg. Where is it? we got to put it back on. Where is my leg? You know, I really thought he took it by mistake. Jason's foot is gone. They've amputated his leg just below the knee. And with that foot has gone his toe, his crab-tying championship toe. It's a lot to process. In one of the recovery rooms, there was a picture of, um, you know, there was a, it was a beach, a headland, an ocean. I, you know, I can only imagine myself doing that again, and that's what I've done my whole life. Looking at that picture, it was the only way I could explain to the doctors at the time. Is just, See that picture? That's what I do. I come around that headland in a tinny, I land on that beach and I walk up it and I set up camp and I go swimming, uh, diving from there or fishing and then I come back and do the same thing the next day. His voyage has been so much harder and so much longer than he had ever imagined. But Jason's still a long way from home. The next day they they wanted to see if I'd get into a wheelchair and I thought, oh great, I'm out of here because I'd spent so long on my back, you know, it was been, felt like months. And it was actually a few weeks, so I was happy to get up, get in the wheelchair, and I did that, no problem. You know, I dragged, uh, I sat up alongside the bed, hopped down on one foot and then jumped in there, and I was off. I I started reversing and I'm zooming around. They're going, no, 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 come back, come back. And I said, no, I want to go around the, I want to go around the ward. I want to keep going. They said, no, Jason, that's fine. You come back here. So they actually got me out of there again and got me beside the bed and I, I, I could get out myself. And I said, OK, that's the first round done. You've done well, you know. And it was just to see if you get into the wheelchair. But I was actually keen to just keep going. I was um, sick of being on my back. So it was all up to me to get in and have a go and make it work. So... I remember on the, I don't know what they call them, parallel bars. I had to learn to walk in that 
again with my leg. So they casted me up, and then two weeks later, I had my cast and my leg. It wasn't easy. My first steps, I could only I could only wear this new leg for you know one hour. That was it, and there'd be too much pain involved, um, and I couldn't switch the pain off mentally enough to to allow for, to be on it for longer than one hour. So, you know, the next week I, I tried day by day, um, and it took weeks to get you know two hours out of it. It took another couple of weeks to get three hours out of it. It took a long time to adjust and get used to that leg. I thought, how am I going to do these things? I could not wait to get home. Coming back to Stanage was great. It, I, I just needed to be beside the sea again. I've been beside the sea all my life. And I can't imagine myself not being by the sea. You know, I have salt water in my veins, and it's one of the things that uh, it's so natural to me that uh, it has to be that way. And um, fishing and crabbing has played a big part in my recovery too, because I always thought, how am I going to crab again? And uh, how am I going to fish again? And, and it, it's, it's pretty easy. I put this leg on. If it's not rough, I won't get any pain. The future I haven't really looked into, apart from how am I going to make a dollar again, and um, I've come to the conclusion I can still crab, but being away for the three years uh, I was in Thailand, it's changed dramatically, the uh, commercial fishing game. So I'm going to get uh, some investors to help me get back into the game. I've always looked at fishing as a lifestyle, I've never really looked at it as a job. You know, it's got me this far in life and, and I think it's going to get me further too. I, I can't let this beat me. So the pirate of Stanage Bay is home and man is he grateful to be anchored there. In history there's pirates and some of them do have one leg or one, one arm or one hand. I've never really wanted to be a pirate in this aspect but, uh, you know, God maybe has other plans for me. was reported by Meg Bolton. Thanks for listening to Days Like These. We'd love it if you'd follow Days Like These on the ABC Listen app or on your favourite podcast app so that you never miss an episode from us. And while you're there, consider leaving us a rating or a review. It helps new people find the show and we love that. Also, if you've got a story you want us to hear, that could be a crab pot tying story or a travel story or any great story at all, you can send us an email or a voice memo Get in touch at dayslikethese at abc.net.au. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Kulas. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram. Our lead reporter is Pat Abud. Our Season 3 reporting team includes Sam Wicks, Belinda Lopez, Anthony Scully, Melanie Tate, James Viver, John Chia, Meg Bolton, Taylor Gray and Alicia Sometimes. Our researcher is Tamar Kranswick. And our digital team includes Andrew Davies and Michael Delaney. This episode was engineered by Melissa May and Carrie Dell. And the supervising producer is Justine Kelly. 
Our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Rachel Fountain. And our theme song is Yeah Nah by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. Extra music by Russell Stapleton. See you next time. Next time on Days Like These, we enter the inner sanctum of rock and roll royalty. As musician Tate Sheridan goes backstage to find his hero, a friend and a pen pal. I walked in, I was ushered in by his personal assistant. Probably the nicest smelling room I've ever entered in my life. Filled with roses and beautiful ferns. Elton loves um, collecting things. He's an avid collector. So there were all these bobbleheads and incredible perfumes and, and flowers and, yeah, and that kind of thing. And he was sitting there on the couch in his Adidas tracksuit, looking very, you know, godlike and incredible. And then he just pulled me in for a big hug. And I, I kind of almost just broke down. I couldn't believe that any of this was real. I remember saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just really nervous. And he said, of course you are. That's next time on Days Like These. And while you're waiting, why not try out another great ABC podcast? Like this one. Just before turning 50, I realised that I was totally overwhelmed by the state of the world and my own life. But I also felt like time was running out. So the question is, how to make the most of the years that I have left on this planet? Are you overwhelmed by the current state of the world? I have to say I am a little overwhelmed. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of uncertainty. Absolutely every minute of the day. What are you doing about it? Not watching the news. Not being fully lucid all of the time. Yeah. I think living in a state of slightly blissful ignorance from time to time just to give yourself a little break. I am overwhelmed by the current state of the world. I think just generally a lot of negativity. But that's mainly to do with social media, I have to say. Am I overwhelmed? I'm not. I call myself love warrior. I like to sit in hope and love and that love will heal the world. You'd have to be deaf, dumb and blind not to be. And on many fronts, it's overwhelming. The earth is cooking at an ungodly rate. And the contest between ignorance and knowledge seems to be uh, in full flight. No, I'm not, because I have a certain way of understanding. Having my Buddhist framework has a way of seeing the world, that there is suffering and all levels of suffering. We all have it to one degree or another, but we have this potential to learn to live with it in a very brave, courageous way. Not only that, but to learn to help, learn to be of use.